0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Beer and Loathing. Uh, it's a podcast. It's also a Meerkat show. Meerkat's that live streaming app. We uh, we go to a bar every week. We bring in a guest. We'll uh, talk, take questions, take comments on Meerkat, and then we uh, put it up as a podcast. This week's guest is Sarah Heppala. She's the author of the new memoir, Blackout. It's, about, uh, it's a memoir of being a, a blackout drinker. She would drink so much that she couldn't... Uh, uh, there'd be these big gaps in her life. She just couldn't tell what had happened for hours, and she'd have to piece it together afterwards. It's a, it's a really interesting book. But more than that, she's just a really interesting person with a really interesting story. She was my co-worker uh, at Salon for a couple of years. So we have a few stories from those days as well. Uh, we talked about a lot of fun things. Uh, Sarah Heppala on this week's podcast. Here it is. Here in a bar uh, in my neighborhood uh, in New York, And uh, joined by a special guest who I'm going to introduce now. And i got to say, I've been looking forward to this episode. This is our ninth episode so far. And I've been looking forward to this one more than any of the others. So much that I actually prepared an introduction that I will now read. (laughs) My guest tonight was my date to Elliot Spitzer's Christmas party in 2010. That's true. She was also my co-worker for several years at Salon, where I was the politics editor and where she is still the personal essays editor. But... (laughs) She's also something else now. A New York Times best-selling author of a brand new red-hot memoir called Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. What a title. When I started reading it, I was planning to tell her only nice things about it, no matter what, because that's the kind of guy I am. A coward. (laughs) By the time I finished, no fake flattery was needed. I always knew Sarah was a great writer, but reading this book was an amazing experience. It's a moving personal story, but she's also just an incredibly funny and sharp writer, deeply perceptive about human nature and the absurdities of social interaction. It's a drinking memoir, but I almost hesitate to say that because it's so much more, and I'm really (laughs) excited to talk to her about it. And besides this book and salon, she's also written for The New York Times Magazine, The New Republic, Glamour, The Dallas Morning News, and Alt Weekly in Austin, Texas. And now that I've done all of this brown nosing, I'm hoping she won't share too many embarrassing stories about me. <laughs> From our salon days. Sarah Heppola, welcome. Yay! <laughs> it's the most prep work I've ever done for this show, I hope you're honored by that.
1: I'm so honored by that, and I hope I'm the only person that went to an Elliot Spitzer party with you. Well, that we you can, have on this, we show. can
0: talk a little bit about the Elliot Spitzer. But, but before we begin, I have a gift I want to give you. Oh actually. my goodness! So now I know you don't, you know, part of the stories you don't drink anymore. So I brought a beverage for you to the bar, and this might bring back memories to you.
1: Oh, it's, this is so cute. It's a Diet
0: Dr. Pepper, and I used to get Sarah a Diet Dr. Pepper every day at Salon. Do you still drink Diet Dr. Pepper? I do.
1: I love it. Um, it's a great alternative to the regular Diet Coke. Um, you did used to get that. You'd always get you'd go get your snack wells.
0: That's right. And then you would
1: pick up a Diet Coke for me. It was the sweetest thing.
0: I also, there was this convenience store across the street from us at Salon. They had an unlimited, a seemingly unlimited supply of napkins at, at the counter, <laughs> and it became my goal every day to steal as many as I could and to build a napkin mountain at my desk, and it got to about two and a half feet tall, and then it, I think it collapsed of its own weight one day,
1: but, but that was... I had no idea you were doing that, and it's not surprising to me at all.
0: Um, so, well, let me, let me start with this. I mean, the obvious question, I think, to anybody tuning in right now, I mean, um, you've written a memoir about... Uh, the, the, the life you had a, as a drinker, um, but also quitting drinking and, yeah. and the life you, you sort of grew into. And here you are doing this interview now in a bar, what's, right? What's that like to be an ex drinker in a bar right now? It's
1: terrifying. I can't believe you've done this to me. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, well, it's fine because it's you and it's it's you know I, I, as long as I'm with friends, I feel safe. What I can't really do, which I used to do when I was traveling is go into a bar where I don't know anybody. I mean, there's nothing to do for me there, you know? There were a few years after I quit drinking when I really couldn't go into bars. It was kind of like when you break up with somebody and you just need to avoid the places that you've been together. You don't necessarily play the old songs. You don't play, you don't go to the restaurants where you guys fell in love, you know? Don't do that. But then after a certain amount of time passes, this place is just another place it's just another cool spot in new york where we can all sit together at a bar it happens to be that you guys are drinking beer and i'm drinking club soda and now have a dr pepper chaser a lukewarm one (laughs) (laughs) um but it's comfortable um that said if this party were to go on all night and you guys were like basically drinking is like people start taking different trips than me and after about three or four or five beers or drinks they're like in another area than I'm in and I can't touch them anymore and I have to go, I have to go home. Like basically there's a point where everything gets a little too funny to you guys that are drinking and um, everyone starts to talk a little bit too loud. Here's the other thing that drunk people do that you forget when you're not drinking, I mean when you are drinking with them. They just violate basic rules of social protocol, like they touch you a little bit too much, <laughs> and they like interrupt you, and they won't stop talking, and they talk real close, and you can smell their and breath. this is, and this stuff. is all
0: stuff you, you didn't notice until- Never
1: knew that. Always thought that drunk people were the funniest people in, in the world, including myself, mostly. Um, I loved bars, and I loved um, the camaraderie of bars, and I loved nothing more than sitting around and spending five hours in a bar talking. And I always thought we were getting great work done, you know? But I think there's diminishing returns after a certain time. So,
0: but so right, you have to leave after a few drinks. But are, or do you go out socially to bars a, a fair amount now, or I is don't, that is it sort I, of a, a rare? It's kind
1: of a lost love for me. Yeah. And I, you know, I really used to love being in bars, and I just don't go very much. It's just not. There's just not a lot there for me now. So what, what did you replace it with? You know it's really hard you know eating was the first thing so like my addictions were so unbelievably twinned and like or like there was like a swap it was like one day i stopped drinking and i just like got a hot, a pint of hagen-dazs that night and i mean that was just what i did every night you what of, flavor yeah absolutely peanut butter and chocolate oh Hello. that's
0: that is the that's best that's the best yes.
1: and can i tell you that just like with drinking i'd be like i'm not going to eat this whole pint i'm going to eat like half the pint and then halfway through, I'd be like, I should just eat the rest of the pie because you can't just, it's not going to be enough
0: we will get the cream. freezer burn on it if you put yeah, exactly. it back in there. You don't want you, that.
1: And it gets melty, which is like, <laughs> you, it goes faster right. than
0: <laughs> The soup is always better. The soup
1: is better. And so I'd always finish it and be like, oh, I can't believe I finished <laughs> that whole pint. I'm not going to do that tomorrow. And then I would inevitably do it tomorrow the exact same way. And it was always that peanut butter and chocolate, which by the way, is the best. Hagen mm-hmm. dazs because well, it would, has nice big chunks of the chocolate.
0: I was having. I mean, this, the peanut, the peanut butter. butter. Well, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, just because it's a it's it's a thing about I guess sort of addictive behavior and, and and whatever. And so we we were trying to just we were trying to do a day of just like eating clean, you know, the whole like eat sprouts, nah. and no gluten. I still don't know what that is, but like <laughs> all, all that stuff. And it's just like the day before we did this, I had never felt more liberated than at, you know about six o'clock that night. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a whole new person starting tomorrow. So tonight. <laughs> I could go everywhere and eat anything I want.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that is the great thing. I mean, it's funny because in recovery there, the famous line, right, is one day at a time, you know, take it one day at a time. But I took my drinking life one day at a time for like a long time. There was just like, I'm going to start tomorrow. I'm going to start tomorrow. I'm going to start tomorrow. And that makes tonight so much more (laughs) fun, There were a lot of tonights. And then then tomorrow I changed my mind. Um, But, you know, I... I've had to replace it with uh, deep connected conversations with people that I care about um, and that is hard to come by. Like my social circle is smaller.
0: Um, if you're watching on Meerkat right now, uh, we have somebody, we'll, he'll go nameless by choice, but our, our regular moderator, Jeff, still in Greece, not here this week, but our backup moderator um, is looking at comments coming in, comments, questions, so send them in, he'll he'll hand over stuff to me. We. We'll talk about that, too. We also have, coming up in a few minutes, some of your favorite icebreaker questions we're going to ask Sarah. But um, here's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, This comes around to that, uh, I mentioned we both went to Elliot Spitzer's Christmas party in in 2010. Do you know how it, I thought about this today, I was thinking about how that came about, that we were there. And it it ties into your book, I think, And, and, and here's, I don't know if you remember this, But um, the reason we were were there was because I was on the Elliot Spitzer CNN show. Right. That thing, you know, was on for a few months. And um, I got on that show because one day I was at Salon that fall, and I got a phone call middle of the day from one of the producers, and they were doing, the show wasn't on yet, they were doing like auditions, tryouts for guests. And they said basically, "We're, we're launching this, we need you here in like an hour. And at the time in my life, I'm not, you know, I'm way in debt. I'm trying to get any money I can get from TV would be fantastic. I've never gotten a cent from TV. So I'm like, this is a huge opportunity. I'm also scared, you know, I'm scared. So I, and I told you this, do you remember what you did? No. You walked me over to the freezer and one of our, uh, uh, the accountant or whatever had, Uh. had a big bottle of vodka in the freezer and you poured a shot Uh. and I drank it and you poured me another shot and I drank it.
1: I'm, I do remember this now.
0: I'm telling you what I, I hadn't eaten all day. I got in the car to go over to <laughs> CNN, and I'm feeling. I am feeling it. I am like, but you know, it put me in this like. It's the reason I got. I got became a regular on Parker Spitzer because I went to the uh. audition and I was totally loose, and I don't even remember. what, I, I was drunk for the audition. Oh for my Parker gosh! Spitzer, but it worked. This is so <laughs> funny.
1: I completely forgot that, and now it's all coming back to me, and that is absolutely a true story. Um, I have always wondered actually how you're so calm on TV because it scares the pants off of me. Um, And what I'm learning from this story is that it didn't start out that way for you. I forgot that part. (laughs) I forgot the part where you were really scared because I think of you as kind of Teflon in that way. um, That you don't always have the fears that I do, but maybe it's that you did and you just got over them.
0: Sometimes, although there was a, here's another one. I'll see if you remember this one. We were oh. both supposed to go on MSNBC one day. Yeah, do you did. remember this one? This is, the, I'll, I'll tell this story. Uh, uh, Sarah, when we were both at Salon, uh, I had written something about, you know, the presidential race or whatever, so I'm gonna go on. It's the end of the year, and Salon every year, under Sarah's leadership, would do the year in, what was it? It was Salon
1: Sexiest Men. So
0: that was the, oh, it was actually called The Sexiest was, Men, okay. Yeah,
1: well, I think it was called something so different. They, they,
0: wanted, um, they wanted Sarah to come on and, and talk about our list of the 10 sexiest men, and they wanted me to come on the same show, like 20 minutes earlier, and talk about politics. So, Sarah, you were a little nervous about it. I was
1: terrified, actually. I was trying to be cool about it, and I was absolutely undone. I mean, I was really freaking I out. remember,
0: yeah. And I, was, and I was telling you, we'll go together. It'll be fine. I was like, you know, may not be the most people watching. It'll be okay. And <laughs> you <laughs> swayed me by telling no, then, nobody um, was watching. So you're, you're, we, I talked you into it. You're all set to go. And then the producer calls up and says, "You know what? We just looked at this and we said we, we can't have two salon people on the same show. Yeah. So Steve's going to sit there and, and Steve will talk about Michelle Bachman, and then he'll stick around and talk about the sexiest men. Yeah. And this is before I'd written this essay, where it was, <laughs> it was a, um, it was so I, I was the most. It's, it's sitting out there somewhere online. It's me. I don't even remember who's on our list of the.
1: I it was Russell Brand was the number one. <laughs> yes. Um, but you know what's funny about that too? You know I talk a lot in the book about this weird um, conflict I had about a Attention, which is that I crave attention but I'm terrified of it. That's on my list of things. And to ask you, but, yeah. I remember <laughs> this show because I was absolutely undone by the idea that I was gonna be on MSNBC, but then there's like a cresting wave where then I was like, you know what? I might be really good. And you know what? I might get my own show. And like I got really <laughs> carried away. I got like totally carried away. And in my head I was like hosting a show in the future, and then it was like, oh, Steve's just gonna do it. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> never mind.
0: And you see, you would have had uh, Saturday and Sunday mornings on MSNBC <laughs> five years later. You that would have written your, your story
1: about being, <laughs> drinking all that vodka before had. you went on. Right.
0: But that's that's an interesting um, sort of, I don't know, theme in your book or, you know, the, yes. uh, that idea of, and it's y- the idea of you, you simultaneously want to be a star and you want to hide. I know. And you, and you also talk about, like, growing up, and I could kind of relate to this because I, I remember feeling this the same way. You feel there's this—I this, don't know what you'd call the world—the entertainment world or the media world or something. It's—it's it's all about New York and it's—it's—it's it's, it's, oh you know, being on television or being in, in journalism or something. And you, it's this whole other world, and you're looking for somebody who's just going to see it in you oh, yes. without you even having to try, and just take you in like plop you down into that world. And I, I, I thought the same thing. You thought things. that too? Yeah. OK,
1: so that there's this scene where I'm like sitting in a JCPenney's customer service center with my mom. And I just would, I was waiting for, people would come by. And I had this fantasy that they would find me. And they would just see me and be like, "Like we found you, we figured right. it out, you know? And I, I did, I should back up and say, I kinda felt like I'd been plunked into the wrong life to begin with, because I was reading these teen magazines and these books, everything happened in New York or in California, and what am I doing in Dallas? I mean, it just, I'm so far from the action, I'm so stranded, nobody gets me. Um, I think that these discovery fantasies, which, by the way, my mother told me she had this too when she was a young girl, so I think there's something a little bit eternal about it. I don't think for her it took the form of the Hollywood industry, it might have taken the form of another mother, (laughs) you know, that another kind mother would come along and say that's not your real mother, let me take you. (laughs) Um, Whereas I had a loving mother, I didn't need another loving mother. I needed this uh, bigger life that I saw on television. You know, we're children of the '80s, and we worshipped television. I mean, that's where you go to matter.
0: And you and you felt like cause I, this is something I, I always felt was like you, the world that I wanted to live in was the world of these TV shows I Absolutely. watched. Absolutely. To the point that I would I, I remember being in, in like middle school, even high school, probably later, and I would hear a good line on a sitcom. And I would steal it and try to work it into the challenge of <laughs> work it into I conversation. Did that too. And, I know. totally did
1: that too and played <laughs> off. I remember that show, that television show, Nine to Five, mm. and um, there was this one joke where they were they, they said something like, uh, "It was some body joke," and I didn't even get it, but it was like his name was Seymour and and the guy was like I'd like to see more of you and like I used that like with my like second second grade friends and like I didn't even know why it was funny but I think everyone's just like I, I delivered it with panache maybe I used to, it
0: used to be a challenge to me as a kid would be to, like trying to I didn't want it wasn't impressing the adults in the room by being like the smartest it was like trying to impress the adults in the room by like Putting, getting a joke off that they would actually laugh at and feeling like, uh-huh. wow, I'm sophisticated and I'm mature. or say, Like, I remember, see, I'm, I'm like a politics nerd, but I wasn't always. Yes. So I remember being, like, in, in, in third grade or something, and um, the presidential race was going on, and, and it, I was at, like, a, a thing with my family, and, and uh, my aunt was talking to me. I said, who do you support? And I said... The only name I knew at the time I was running for president was Jesse Jackson. So I, like, I support Jesse Jackson. I have absolutely no idea why. And she's like, "Why do you support him?" And so my cousin, who's like, he's in college, he leans in and says, uh, "Tell her he's for abortion." No. I had no idea what it meant, so I just said that to my aunt, and um, she seemed she seemed to consider that a you know a serious a serious point. So that was that was how I really took uh, adults. Um, well, let's try some of these. Um, icebreaker questions. Good. Um, I usually use these on guests I've never talked to you before, but we've talked a little bit, but let's try them anyway. So, the way it works is I have 18 of them here. Okay. So you need to pick a number between 1 and 18, and then answer the question.
1: Alright, 16.
0: Number 16, uh, Do you ever feel cheapened by writing headlines and social media teases for your articles? Oh
1: my gosh, yes, every day. Um, I don't know how much I can say about that, you know, but it's like, that's something that changed during the time that I was at Salon because um, I can still remember, well, I remember back at the Alternative News Weekly in Austin and all the headlines like had puns in them. So it was like, if it was about a winemaker, it was like, grape expectations. (laughs) I I think I wrote like, there were like four different articles that were called, the kids are all right. Like, I don't know why the kids were in danger of not being (laughs) all right, but that was always the go-to headline. So they just were like vaguely about what you were talking about and suggestive. And you'd sit around like kind of making up puns with people in in the office. I was never good at it, but it, it, it wasn't like cheapening in some way. And then I don't know when it changed exactly. I can't pin it on a map, but, you know, you get the introduction of RSS feeds. You get um, SEO um, being a part of, of, you know, Google searches being necessary for traffic. And somewhere around 2007, you go from two- and three-word headlines to just, they have to be full sentences. And then, you know, the first thing that happened was you wanted to put, like, buzzwords in there. Like, I remember if you put boob... Or pubic hair. Or, I think, libertarian, maybe. This tells you a lot about salon. Um, Those were like the pop words, you know? That also tells you about my section, too, because I don't think you were putting pubic hair. I used used
0: pubic hair in in most of my (laughs) political stories,
1: yeah. (laughs) I was in the life section, so I was writing personal essays. But there were just definitely buzzwords. And then, I don't know, it, it was just it went out of control somewhere around 2009 or 2010. And then um, the the hard thing for me was that I'm dealing with people's personal stories. And so people are writing sometimes about incredibly vulnerable things. And they can be hard to articulate and hard... That's why they're writing about them. Because they're about conflict and nuance, you know. And then, you know, when they see a headline and, you know, whatever it is, like... um, uh, I'm I'm the bearded lady. That was actually a headline, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> which was a, which was a really amazing story about a woman that had facial hair.
0: But you have to reduce it to almost like an internet and meme it was or something. This, and
1: ah uh, yeah, I mean she was actually okay with that headline because she knew it was a shock headline, you know. But <clears throat> it it's so hard because. Um, you try to push the headlines because you want attention, but if you push them too much, you cheapen the material. And you also realize that there's a certain cheap fuel source that you're, that you're existing on, which is that the more you do this, the more you use pubic hair and boobs in your headlines, the more you become known as the pubic hair and boobs site, <laughs> which is not the path to Pulitzer's.
0: Well, I, I mean, when I was the, the politics editor, I felt this all the time, too. There's the, the compromise you have to make. You, know, you want the stuff you publish to get attention. Yes. You want it, and, and you're judged ultimately by the audience size. Are you growing the audience size or are you not? And so I I always found myself, there were certain pieces that, that I would put up that I felt like, these are the ones that are paying the bills. Like I'm going to right. let out my inner propagandist in the headline writing of this one and in the Twitter, you know, whatever you call it, the, the Twitter blurb for it. Um, and, and by getting really, really cheap traffic with this I am going to subsidize the really smart thing that I'm going to publish this afternoon from somebody that I'm really looking for. I mean, that was what I would tell myself. Right. But I also might just have been sort of like, I mean, I don't know if people listening to this know the chart beat, but that's this like real-time traffic thing. If you're, if you're in journalism, you can constantly monitor the number of people on your site, and that – there was always a challenge for me was to look at that and not be distracted by it, but I, I so often was. You know?
1: I know and you also start, I mean I started to fiddle with it, you know, if the story wasn't doing well then you do the like let's change the headline, yep. let's just start throwing some words in there that'll spice it up. I mean it just gets, it gets to be a little bit of a desperate game. I think in a lot of writing online right now there's too much information in terms of what will get you clicks. Um, And there's really not enough information about what makes a story valuable or how many people are reading to the end because that doesn't matter to us. You know, there was an interesting piece that was written a few years ago called The Year We Broke the Internet that was basically, do you remember this piece? Mm -hmm. And it was about how on the internet there's no difference qualitatively between a story that sucks and a story that's great because the only metric for success is clicking. So you can click on stuff because you hate it so much. It just doesn't matter. There's no reward for being good, Right. which is kind of messed it's, up. Yeah,
0: no, the incentive system is is not yet worked out, I think, I, online journalism. Um, let's pick another uh, a number here. Let's try another one okay. of these. Okay, uh,
1: okay, three.
0: Number three. Uh, how frustrating is it when you order a salad and instead of leafy green lettuce, you get stuck with that thick, crusty white stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Happened to me today. I was going to say. <laughs>
1: Um so I'm actually impressed that you ordered a salad.
0: It stretches the definition of salad when you get down to it but yes it
1: could technically. Were you consider- hoping to get one of those salads that had no lettuce in it's it? It's one of those like you get
0: you get lettuce, and then you also get extra dressing, extra cheese, extra sour cream, and in a uh, tortilla bowl.
1: <laughs> oh, that, <laughs> you know? I know what you're talking about yeah, now. And yeah. you hate that iceberg lettuce. Right,
0: so I end up weeding it out of the salad, and then the yeah. people behind the counter give me a weird look like, you know, yeah. that our lettuce isn't good enough for you. And I'm like, well, no, it isn't actually. I could, you, you know, you could do a little better with the you know, green leafy lettuce. So it's, it's, it's one of my, it's one now, of my pet I'm, peeves. Let me
1: ask you a question, which is how much does your audience... Um, on the the podcast know about your picky eating habits? Oh,
0: it's been discussed before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we had a a guest on, I think it was Josh Barrow once, um, who's a a super guy and he was talking all about different uh, restaurants he'd been to and and I I didn't recognize any (laughs) of the (laughs) And you were
1: like, nothing. Oh, oh, that
0: was the one. Anna Sale was talking to us about, I just, you probably heard of this, uh, what were they called? Honey... Anybody remember these honey, honey? crisp apples. I said honey glazed apples. Oh, right? sure. honey crisp so apples. Yeah. Honey crisps. I was yeah. I was picturing an apple that was dipped in like honey and it was glazed. Was, that actually sounds pretty good, but that's not not what it is apparently. So, but you've heard of these.
1: I have heard of honey crisps. <laughs> yes, I have.
0: I'm still um, waiting for the one person who's like, yeah, that fooled me, too. No, <laughs> no, not me.
1: But to get to your question, you know, I think that um, that is an irritating thing. It's also really super gross when they're when it's browned, too. Oh, yeah. Have you ever gotten that experience? Oh, I've gotten
0: brown. I've gotten, like, this, this really uh, unhealthy color of yellow. Um, yeah. You know, there's also, there's like, the iceberg part of it, but then there's also, like... I guess they'll give you the core of the lettuce sometimes. Yeah. Oh, it's the most disgusting thing you've ever... I'm like, oh, come on, people, you could just, you know, have somebody at the start of every day, when they dump the lettuce into the bin, make it their job to spend 15 minutes weeding out the really crispy one. You know, that's... When I own...
1: Well, yeah, when you, know, you run the fast world... Food, just, no,
0: yeah. I'm just going to own a fast food chain, and that's going to be, you know... I'm gonna, I told everybody who works on my show, I'll hire them, you know, we'll all, we'll all good. Work, we'll good. be one happy family, and we're still working on that. Um, I want to ask you a few more things about... I wrote down here... A couple things in your book that really like resonated with me and I wanted to, to ask you about them uh, or just get you to talk about them a little bit. These are, these are quotes from the book. Um, let me read this one. This is page three of my notes, I never have this many notes. Um, this was interesting about becoming a journalist. You started out uh, in Texas, you ended up at Slime, you're back in Texas and you said, there are wonderful reasons to become a journalist, to champion the underdog, to be professionally curious. Me, I just wanted to get free stuff and see my name in print.
1: Oh, it's so true. I wish that I had more noble reasons, and I have a fantasy that people like you and Joan Walsh all came into journalism for noble reasons.
0: No, that resonated with (laughs) me, because that's pretty much where I was coming from.
1: (laughs) I have to remember, I'm 20, I'm I'm like 20 years old at this time. Um, I wanted to be a playwright or a novelist, and so the idea that um, somebody, first of all, was gonna pay me now, today, beer money, Good beer money to tell you what I thought about a free movie was like, come on, what's the catch? <laughs> what's the catch? And I also was a theater nerd, and um, so uh, nobody, like in the entertainment office, it's basically staffed by nine guys that want to review the Pavement album, you know? <laughs> and like me being like, oh my gosh, uh, you know, a Sondheim musical, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, um, <clears throat> it was. So- It was so and I don't know what the like luxurious to me this idea that you would uh, be paid for your for something I was doing on an amateur basis all my life I mean you and I were pop culture junkies from the time that we were kids so it never occurred to me that that paid and I don't know why I guess maybe I wasn't really into like high brow art that would have I would have been turned on to like criticism I didn't. I didn't have any idea that I could be paid for that. I just thought I had to make that, and that was going to be something down the line that I could do. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was just, to me, it felt like I was getting away with uh, some kind of, I don't know, like um, Ponzi scheme, you know? <laughs> like I was on top. Well,
0: you were. I mean, you write here, uh, too, that, I mean, the life of a journalist in your early 20s, your mid-20s. And, and, and oh, my god, you're, you're going to all these... You're interviewing all these really cool people. It was so
1: incredibly cool. So I'm also in Austin, Texas, which is, um, at the time, was sort of right before, this is right before its giant boom period. Um, So it's still this sort of cheap, I mean cheap, um, inexpensive is what I mean, um, slacker town, where all these stoners are living and running this, you know, newspaper. And you know, you come in at 10.30, you get a breakfast taco you hang out with the staff, you go see free movies, you see play, I mean it was, honestly, I don't, I can't, still can't believe somebody paid me to do that. It was incredible. But then the funny thing is, is then I'm like so ragingly angry that I'm not getting more too. Because all my friends had moved away from Texas. And so they had gone to New York and um, DC and I was so mad at myself for not leaving.
0: You felt like they're on the big stage At, there, and yeah, and
1: that was that big stage that yeah. I always wanted. And I had kind of, I had kind of uh, wimped out and stayed in Austin. Um, and even though it was such a great job, I just felt like um, I still felt like, oh, if I'd gone to those other cities, I'd be famous by now. <laughs> I wish. I mean, where did. The, that whole thing about I need to be famous, I mean, I was thinking, when we were talking about movies I and mean, shows that we watched when we were a little kid, see, I watched this this show called Fame. There actually was sure, this yeah, show on yeah. television where they went to the high school performing arts, and I loved that show, and I just think that at it, some impressionable time period, you know, it just, it really imprinted upon me that that was going to be... Not only was that a good idea, but that was going to be my path. And I think I had some idea that because I wasn't popular or because I wasn't rich, I was going to get this next thing, which was I was going to be famous somehow. Yeah, it's just how it works,
0: Everybody right? Everybody gets one of the three, right? Lines, and I, right? I didn't get the first two, so I guess
1: the next one's coming up. And uh, so by the time I'm 25, you know, I'm doing these stories at the Austin Chronicle, and I mean, it's such a great life, but I'm still sort of like, why haven't I written a book? You know, why haven't I done, like, these other things? Haven't I gone to one of these great cities? Um, and I, I don't know, you know, I think I had a funny mix of, like, total entitlement and then great humility and, like, insecurity. Like, I was totally insecure.
0: But that's what, I, I mean, that's one thing I love about... Reading your book too is that you you write with uh, there's, there's an honesty to it, a self awareness and, and an honesty to it. So you're you you're criticizing yourself and you're identifying what you think of as negative traits. But I think the fact that you see these things and you, I don't it's 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 very that's um, what makes it I think easy for somebody like me to relate to it. Like there's another part that um, that I really like too, and I, I've had moments like this that I can think of throughout my life. You you start at I think it's the Alt Weekly in Austin, and you come into the office. And you put up a poster. Oh of my God. Rent, oh, and yeah. It t- it'll tell the.
1: Yeah, so this is when I first got my job at the Alt Weekly in Austin, which was a pretty hip place. And I had gone to New York City. New York City, y'all. The Big Apple. <laughs> <laughs> and I had gone to Broadway. And I had seen Rent the Musical. I was so proud, and I got a poster. <laughs> and so I loved that. It was about Bohemian, Bohemian New York. So anyway, um, I came back and I put it um, behind my desk, and nobody said anything about it. Like, nobody was like, uh, hey, cool poster. But this one guy uh, walked by, and he just like pointed at it, and he was like, seriously? And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that this is like completely uncool. And it was just one of those incredibly deflating moments uh-huh. where you realize that the paper, the toilet paper is trailing behind your you know, shoe <laughs> right. at the moment when you thought you were being most cool. And so I was so embarrassed that I um, waited until the weekend, till everybody was gone, and I took the poster down, and I replaced it with a poster from Blade Runner, which is a poster that my roommate had left at my house. So you weren't even a Blade and Runner I fan. And I wasn't even a Blade Runner fan. I think we'd watched it together, but I was always drunk, and I'd always fall asleep, and I don't know how it ends, and I don't know, I
0: know it was about, I and that
1: was it's your about favorite an movie. but now I like, put that Guys, movie up. Guys, so awesome. I knew everybody would like it, and in fact, the same guy, like, he stopped by and he was like, now that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and i knew i was a fraud like i knew i was a fraud and i was basically doing this is like also a you know it's it's representative of so much of hipster life it's you know you basically you find out that what you like is not cool and then you replace it with something that is socially accepted and you learn that you know the vocabulary of hipsterdom essentially you know but i knew it was fake i knew i didn't really i was waiting for somebody to ask me plot points about blade runner which i never <laughs> would have known and so we were kind of getting the into ending, this whole the, the ending exactly. Is really, is really I know good. there's an android. He's <laughs> crying, I think. And um and so uh, I took the Blade Runner poster down, and then uh, I eventually put up a picture of the Backstreet Boys behind me, because I thought that made me kind of uh, bulletproof. Because you didn't know if I liked the Backstreet Boys or not. You have no idea. Now, the truth is, I secretly loved the Backstreet Boys. But you can't get me now. It could have been Because ironic. it's ironic. Right. And irony became the masterful shield behind which many of us in the late 90s hid. You know? And so, it just so happened that, like, I watched the Backstreet Boys documentary the other day. And I was like, I still like the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> but it was funny. Like, the whole, like to put up a Backstreet Boys Post, it wasn't a poster, it was actually just torn out of Entertainment Weekly. In the Austin Chronicle, it was transgressive. Like, it was kind of cool. People were like, yeah.
0: Right. Well, that was, at, at the same time, roughly, I was working, um, I was in Boston working at a movie theater. And I remember they gave us, um, they gave us pins with like the big blockbusters of the summer we were supposed to wear. So that summer it was like the perfect, a perfect storm or Patriot, uh, the Patriot, <laughs> yeah. these, are, these are the movies. So, To be ironic back then, I was like, well, we're not going to wear this. I I printed out on a crude, like, dot matrix printer, um... The uh, uh, pictures of the covers of really, really bad movies. Yeah. Like Baby Geniuses or Bats, <laughs> And I, I would wear those around that's the, the, and I gave those out well, to Well, That's also the, kind of a staff. middle
1: finger to the blockbuster, yeah. that, isn't it? Yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, yeah that's that was, good. I
0: was not their favorite employee. I, no. I, I resigned over a fake foot injury. It was a highlight of
1: You know, I think a lot of the through line and a lot of this stuff is just, I don't like, and, and I believe this about people that have drinking problems, is there's just a sort of failure to accept who you are. And there's, there's a certain gut level. I, I don't think that what I am is okay. Like, if I'm just a girl in Dallas growing up, that's not enough. I need to be famous. And if I'm at this Alt Weekly, I want to know why I'm not at a bigger Alt Weekly. And if I <clears throat> want to talk about things that I like, it's not okay if you don't like them. Uh, you, everyone needs to like them, too. You know, so there's, there's an enormous amount of just anxious people-pleasing in me that I think... Um, and also trying to matter in the world and trying to be more I don't know just to compensate for just some root level I didn't
0: or you're a it sounds like you're a performer too you know what I mean those are those are performers instincts right there's an audience and I want to keep the audience engaged oh my gosh
1: yeah absolutely but what if what happens when you're performing your life
0: stressful (laughs) (laughs) we um, not too many please feel free if you got anything to say uh, send in comments questions we did hear from our uh, moderator Jeff He's watching. Look at this. He's on a beach in Greece. And he's watching this. So, uh, hi there, Jeff. I hope you're enjoying the uh, economic meltdown. Uh, we'll see if some more if some more uh, come in. In the meantime, we have a few more icebreakers we could try. So That's why don't you good. pick another number you haven't used yet, and let's see what we got here.
1: Let's do lucky number seven.
0: Number seven. Uh, <laughs> How often do people accidentally refer to you as an editor with Slate?
1: Oh, my gosh. It's so <laughs> funny. Um, I would say that is about between 5 and 10% is about the, the, and it, it, it's usually in pitch letters, you know, people say, um, I would love to have this piece in Slate, and then if I'm feeling really salty, then I'll write back and be like, well, then why don't you send <laughs> right. it yeah, to Slate, Slate. <laughs> <Right. clears throat> and sometimes they are like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, and then sometimes they're like, thanks for the, um, thanks for the suggestion, like they don't even <laughs> understand what they've done. Um, and it's funny, you know, it's just uh, that got embedded in everyone's psyche in the late '90s that Salon and Slate came up together, and people just can't unswap them. My my
0: question is always: Do people who work at Slate always get confused with, yes, with Salon? I, Does I it work heard, both ways? I
1: have heard from people at Slate that it works both. Okay, ways. Okay,
0: that then I can live with it because yes. that used to, it was the same thing. I would get. I remember a couple of applications for uh, for internships. And they were talking about how, how much they w- were fans of Slate. Uh-huh. And it had been their dream their whole life to work at Slate, uh-huh. and then they're you know, and I would be pretty polite in the uh, in the res- responses I think. But um, but that reminds me of another thing too. We were. Um, I remember the, the first time we got interns when I was working with you at uh, the uh-huh. first batch of interns. It was my first lesson in, I, I was new, I had spent most of my 20s working sort of independently. Uh, I didn't work at an office in New Jersey when I covered politics there. I, I covered Capitol Hill, that was sort of an office. But Salon was really my first day to day office job with the same people every single day. So I didn't have really experience with like interns in the office or anything. <laughs> um, and I remember we, we took them all out for drinks. Uh, we had like a drinks night for the interns when uh-huh. they first started. And, and you told me somewhere and, and I'm like, I feel like I'm hitting it off with them. They're, they're <laughs> laughing at my jokes and they're like, and I'm like, I'm feeling really cool and everything. Uh-huh. And then um, they want to keep the party going uh-huh. and you're like, I'm going home. And I'm like, no, I'm staying out. <laughs> and you, you pulled me aside and you were like, you said something like, don't make the mistake of trying to be friends. <laughs> but I did. And the next thing I know, it's like midnight and I'm telling them like the secrets of salon. <laughs> and I remember I, I'm pretty drunk and I, and I come in the next morning, and I'm like, I now have to face these people for the next three months. So. Steve, you're so gratifying to get drunk though. Like you really do (laughs) spill
1: secrets really fast. I do it when I'm sober
0: too. I I know. You're just like you
1: just have to like, and then you just come out with
0: it. It's so great. I know. If you if you ever want to like confide in somebody, you might want to you know (laughs) pick somebody somebody else. else. But that's also something I I, so I I don't I I don't really I have a few experiences like you've had of uh, the book's about blackout drinking. So when you actually you lose your memory for, yes. for a period of time, and yeah. I I think there's it's probably been a couple times in my life when it's been when it's been that bad when I I've I've missed things. But one thing I I also related to was you write about like when you're drunk. Obviously your your inhibitions go away, but there are people who when their inhibitions go away, they are nasty yeah. and they want to fight you and yeah. they want to you know yell at you. And it sounds like for the most part, and this is this is the feedback I get too when I drink a lot. People yes. tell me a lot like. Some people tell me they like me better Yeah, I yeah, <laughs> It sounds yeah, like you've got yeah. it a lot too. Well,
1: I think that um, my, in it, well, let me think about what my inhibitions are. They're mostly that I'm very critical of myself and in my head all the time. And that puts me in kind of a sour mood because I'm always trying to, um, I'm always beating myself up. So as soon as you take those away, you know, the things like uh, my self-criticism, my doubt, my insecurity, as well as my jealousy of other people, Then I love everyone. I mean, you know, and it's really funny. Not long ago, I was at a family reunion and my drunk uncle was there, whom I adore, and he had to go around individually to everyone there and tell them how much he loved them. And I was like, that runs in the genes.
0: Like, I mean, (laughs) that
1: is a direct line. I have that gene. You get gushy. I want to tell, I would just be like, Steve, 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 I got to tell you something. You're awesome. I just need you to know that you're awesome. You know, like I was always, and, and I think probably by the time you and I were working together, uh, my memory of that is, th- these are the years when I'm actually trying to quit and I'm failing to quit, and so I'm trying to keep a much, much more of a careful rein on my drinking. Um, so I don't know that we ever got really drunk together, although I can certainly remember going out and drinking with you and we had fun. Um, but I, yes, I was a very happy a frothy, gushy drunk that loved to dance and sing. I mean, this is the Irish person in me, you know? Like, I just got gifted the Blarney all over me. Um, But then the problem was, uh, I would say, uh, after a certain point, then I would also get very sad. And that was um, something that you never saw. That was something that was kind of reserved for closer friends where I'm, like, on their couch and, like, talking about my life. Um, It would always be, like, after 11 o'clock, I'd start crying about... Usually it was about, like, the last boyfriend or, like, somebody that I... You know, because that's the other thing, is that as much as I had... um, I'm sort of essentially a happy person. I'm... Or I I should say, essentially a loving person. I'm also essentially kind of a sad person. This is really true. It's always been true about me. And I have a lot of sadness. um, And so... That was the drag about me in the later hours, you know. Uh, But it was very unusual for me to lash out at people. Like, I mean, that certainly happened. For some reason, when I drank bourbon, I would get really angry, and I would sometimes (laughs) lash out at friends and like call them nasty names. But that is like by far the uh, the exception to the rule.
0: You you have there's a particular story in there. I'll I'll ask you to tell this one too because I think it's maybe the most memorable story in the in, in the book. But you're um you're on your way. I guess it's, it's homecoming weekend or whatever for the University Texas of Texas, OU. Texas, so you're on your way with your friends in college, yeah. in a car. <laughs> I
1: was, um, we were all driving to the Texas OU football game which happens at the Cotton Bowl or happened then at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas and I was in Austin, it's about a three hour drive. And there were a bunch of us piled into an SUV and I wasn't driving, Somebody, but we were all, the people that were not driving were all drinking. And they, they had those big, you know, those big novelty plastic cups that are just gigantic. And it was Coke and bourbon. And I have always drank everything um, really fast. It's just like a habit I have, you know. And so I drank the first one really, really fast. And I remember um, way before anybody else finished theirs, and the guy that was filling the drinks was like, okay, like, be careful. And I was like, no problem. And I just... I was going so fast and then the last thing I remember is we stopped about 45 minutes outside of Austin and I went to go to the bathroom and it's the last thing I remember is trying to smoke a cigarette and someone saying to me, you've got to turn it around. You know, so I was already in this like really drunken state, right? That's the last thing I remember and then I wake up and I'm in my parents' house in Dallas and I pulled the poster of James Dean off the wall and I'm using it for a blanket and my parents are gone, thank goodness, they're out of town. Um, and I'm not wearing any clothes, which is just a bad sign. <laughs> Nobody's there, there's like doors open, and like, it just, it's like something has gone really wrong. And I had no idea. So I'm basically missing about four or five hours of time. And um, what ended up happening, um, so my friend called me the next day and I could tell that she was mad at me and I was really freaked out because you just have no idea what you've done. Um, And what it turns out I had done is that um, I had decided um, to moon everybody while we were driving. Which is something that I probably <laughs> learned in some of the 80s movies that <laughs> yes. we watched. Mooning was
0: big in the 80s. Mooning was a really big like, <laughs> meme
1: in the 80s movies. They were always, and it was always these guys like in the middle of the night, and they were like, it's like an expression of their nonconformity and their freedom to just go <laughs> ro- rollicking down the highway. Um, and that's all great, except that we were stuck in traffic at 5 <laughs> o'clock,
0: Rush hour so traffic. rush hour
1: traffic for the Texas OU football game and I am mooning people out the window. We so you're in standstill is, traffic. We were you're... in standstill traffic. And I mean, I just, it's so unfortunate because like, its ju- I was just in that deranged, drunken state, you know, and like nobody else was there with me. You know, it's just like very right. bad.
0: Including the family in the next car over oh, in the station yeah. wagon or whatever. No, I mean,
1: you know, and it's just like, I mean, imagine my friends who are just like, hey, how's it going? I'm sorry. <laughs> like, she's drunk, don't worry about it. You know, it's just so embarrassing. I have a line in the book where I say it's like, like, you know, mooning somebody and then being caught in a grocery line with them. You know, it's just, it's so...
0: <laughs> that it's, happened to me a couple days no. ago, actually. It's very, it's very awkward. Well, it and,
1: you know, and it's one of those things where when I was putting together the stories in the book, you know, I, I remember thinking, like, that's not the kind of nudity story people want to hear. <laughs> because... When they hear that you're a drinker, um, they always think, like, oh, well, you know, like, did you did you show your boobs? Or, like, you know, Do you, were you pole dancing? And I know, I never did any of those things. <laughs> like, my episodes of nudity are just so awkward. And, like, nobody thought they were good. You mooned commuters. <laughs> I mean, nobody was like, oh, I hope Heffler really, like, takes it <laughs> off tonight. They were like, no, keep it on, keep it on. Don't moon us anymore. <laughs> I was so mortified by that. You know, it's really funny because a lot of my story is also an extreme body consciousness. And... That has to do with the the mix-up about, like, I want attention, but I don't want anybody to see me, and I had an early puberty, and I didn't like that people could see the early... Like, it really upset me that all of a sudden these things that felt very private to me were things that everyone else can see, and it still bothers me sometimes. Like, sometimes I'll, I'll you know, if I gain 10 pounds, it, like, pisses me off that somebody can see that. Like, you shouldn't be able to see that. <laughs> but, um... I had so much body consciousness, and it's so weird and interesting that when I got really that drunk to that weird twilight place, I would always take my clothes off. Which suggests, I, I don't, it either, I think it suggests that uh, I secretly didn't want to be so inhib- right. in- inhibited, you know, that I wanted to be much freer, uh, but that I was just that choked up with fear of judgment. Um, you know, and, and mm, I don't know, I, I, I could never tell if that was just something I did because I was drunk and pe- drunk people do really stupid, messed up things that don't make any sense. Um, like they take, you know, cake and like smear it on their face or something, <laughs> you know? Um, or if there was really some part of me that wanted to be that kind of exhibitionist. I still don't even know the answer to it's that.
0: You know, people, I, I, the thing that I do, apparently, because when I get the most drunk, which is not that often, um, is with my family. Uh, it was a heavy drinking family and they have a, a, a shack by the beach and um, I will get, I will run down about a half a mile from the, the house to the beach at like two in the morning and jump in the water and I've, I've, it fully clothed, I've, I've lost two cell phones doing this. Oh my God. Uh, a wallet and it was it, apparently one time my cousin was, is a little younger than me, he was with a girl, single, he took her down to the beach. And you know he was just he was trying to have a nice moment with, with the girl on the beach late at night. And I, somebody told me they were there, and I misconstrued what was going on. So I went to rescue my cousin. <laughs> I went running down to the beach, and I don't think he was too happy to see me. So, but usually I'm, I'm a little little nicer than that. Um, we did have a question come in uh, from the audience. It is unrelated to um, to uh, drinking, but it's uh, which TV event are you looking forward to this week? The Last Daily Show or the Republican Debate?
1: Oh, that must be for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, how about you? Do you have a? Are you watching this, these Republican debates at all? You know, no, you know, no,
1: no, no, no. I've never seen anything like that. Because um, you
0: used to have to watch in the office that, uh, that it was mandatory that we had MSNBC on all day. And oh I remember my gosh, that was, I know. That would drive most people nuts because we would hear the same commercials over and over again and the same. Yeah. Some of the well, hosts are, were a little loud. Well, and, uh. are you
1: enjoying this? Room? I mean, because this is Trump. I mean, this is a. It's a what I, do you yeah.
0: I, it's listen. This summer would have been following politics. This summer would have been a lot more boring. Without Donald Trump coming yeah. along, so you know I uh, I, I want to watch this thing. I think this is going to be like the highest-rated you know presidential debate maybe ever for a, a primary debate. So I'm excited about it. I'll DVR the the Daily Show finale and, and watch that, and then and watch the debate. Um, why don't you pick another one of these uh, ice? Okay, breakers? I
1: have a question for you though. Yes. Oh. Okay, but this is a political question. Well, so who's the drinkingest president, U.S. president?
0: Oh. Really? Yeah. I have an answer for you.
1: I know you do. That's oh wait, my why I'm phone, asking. Wait, my phone's you. up
0: here. Our drunkest president was Franklin Pierce.
1: Oh, really? Did you know this? No. That's I why know I'm this. Asking you. No, no,
0: because a few months ago, it's on my Instagram. Uh-huh. Um, here's a plug. Steve01450. <laughs> Sign up. I'm 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 infuriated. A few weeks ago, I found out. What's her name? Uh, the, the Jenner. Uh,
1: oh. Caitlyn Jenner. No, no, the uh,
0: Kylie. 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 One of the Kendall. 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 Kendall Jenner, do you know the name? It's one of the daughters from the... Okay, okay right. Has a few, like a month ago, got the, uh, the most liked Instagram photo in history. And it had 30 million likes. Wow. And it was, she was on the ground with... Her hair, her hair was done in a series of hearts or something, and she's laying on a, a tiled floor. And it got 30 million likes. And I was infuriated because I had taken a picture of a beer can on a beach... In the middle of the winter, and I thought it was like this, like chilling metaphor for the that emptiness of the universe. And, so, and it had 12 likes. Oh. And so I went on my nationally uh, televised uh, television show <laughs> when I said, <laughs> "Here's my Instagram name. Here's the picture. Please go online now and help me catch Kendall Jenner and make this Good. beer can, or at least give it like three million. If she gets 30 million, I'll set up the sure. three million. So we went from 12." to 168. <laughs> Fantastic. So I'm proud of you. We're moving up there. But to answer your question about the, the most drunk president, so I, I was looking at, it must have been the New York Post, one on the tabloids a few months ago in the Sunday paper. I was just scrolling through it somewhere and there was this like presidential trivia thing and it just it said our drunkest president and it was Franklin Pierce. So I took a picture and put it on Instagram and it was something I, I think he had horrible... Family tragedy. Um, I think he lost a son or something like that, and just his life just deteriorated. I think I think he lost his son on his way to be sworn in as president. So his whole presidency, and I think he was a terrible president. He was like a pro-slavery northerner, so he wasn't a really good person. But um, he drank himself to death. Had died of cirrhosis. So. Oh my gosh,
1: he was really a bad drinker. Yeah,
0: and this was he was president of the United States for you know wow for, I mean, near you know pretty much got into the Civil War. So you know. wow.
1: And so, why would I have thought it was Ulysses S. Grant? Was he also a really bad drinker? Interesting.
0: No, now this is, so Grant is, um, Grant's place in history is being revised as we speak. Okay. So, and, and there's a lot of, I didn't realize this until about two years ago, Ulysses Grant was the president during Reconstruction, so right after the Civil War, and Ulysses Grant was a pro-civil rights northerner. He was basically a liberal, you know, run the, the Union Army. And he, he tried to, he was the guy who tried to bring civil rights to the South in the 1870s. Like, black people, black men are allowed to vote. Very progressive for the time. And the backlash in the South um, is what created Jim Crow. They basically, the Ku Klux Klan emerged, and they kicked out the Northern Army, and then Grant had to basically retreat in the South and Jim Crow for the next 90 years. The version of Ulysses Grant you're talking about, of this drunk, incompetent, corrupt president, was largely created by Southerners... In response to the indignity of Reconstruction, what they wow. perceived as the indignity of Reconstruction. And so they create the, the, the Southerners basically got to write the history of U.S. Grant for a century. And they wrote him as this evil, evil, deranged character. And now historians are looking back at U.S. Grant and saying, no, actually he was the good guy. Oh, he, wow. was, he was doing the good stuff and, and they, you know, I'm, I'm sure he liked to drink or whatever. Yeah. But it wasn't it, it was not it this, wasn't Franklin He was Pierce not the levels. mess. No, it wasn't he was no Franklin Pierce. Exactly. <laughs> so um, yeah, Ulysses Grant is an interesting one because hes, um, he's uh, its it, its the one president who I think when you when you take these ratings every few years, like who's the best, who's the worst, he's starting to really move up because yeah. of this. Oh, interesting. I dropped my notes. Hang on.
1: And then I would have thought um, Kennedy would be up there. Was As the he, drunkest? Well, I would think he'd was he was known a- to be a drunk. Or was he? A- well, I just put it all along with, I guess, the womanizing right. and the. Right. I the Playboy think of them, lifestyle. Yeah, or I yeah. just I just think of them as always. I, I mean,
0: Ted was associated with drinking. I And never, Ted, yeah.
1: I mean, also they're a Austin. I mean, Austin, a Boston Irish family. Right. You know, it just. All, it just goes along with heavy drinking. Well,
0: that was Jimmy Carter wrote uh, one of his, you know, 47,000 books that he released a couple years ago. <laughs> no. He said he said in the book he thought that in the 1980 Democratic Convention Carter and Re- and uh, Kennedy had run against each other. Carter won. Kennedy is on the podium with him. He wrote in the book he thought Kennedy was drunk on the podium.
1: See, I yeah, he, he does seem like somebody who dangerously entwined uh, work and drinking.
0: Yeah, I, that was, JFK I never heard as much about, but of course but with Ted. JFK, we, you know, the thing with Ted was all the stuff that was hidden with JFK wasn't hidden with Ted. We saw all of the, yeah. you know, sort of and all he, the warts, you and know. And he
1: also had to endure all those tragedies, too. Right. JFK died, I mean.
0: And then Bobby and then Yeah, and I mean, that.
1: both your brothers die and,
0: uh, yeah. He, he when, when uh, Ted Kennedy ran, I was in Massachusetts as a kid, He ran for re-election in 1994. It was the only close race he ever had. It was against Mitt Romney. And there was a period where it looked like Romney would beat him. And Romney was, you know, oh, you got to debate, you got to debate. And, you know, Ted Kennedy's not going to debate because everybody thinks he's just a a drunken mess. So he agrees to debate. It's his big deal. And this thing got put in the paper. I remember the day of the debate. The Kennedy people rejected the original podiums. And they had to ship in double-sized podiums because he had put on so much weight oh my God. in the last two years. So it, the expectations for Kennedy in this debate were like, this guy is going to be a slurring mess. He's going to hit on the moderate, you know. And he actually, he did fine and he, yeah. and he won the election. But it was like, it was the ultimate example in politics. They always say, lower the bar, then it's easy to clear. Boy, that was, that was the ultimate example <laughs> of it, you know. Um, we have a few minutes. Why don't you pick one more of these? Let's, uh, let's break the ice a little bit more.
1: Okay, okay. You want me to pick a number? Um, pick, I, I pick eleven.
0: Number eleven. Uh, ba, ba, ba. You. Oh, I like this one. This this dovetails nicely with the uh, conversation. You get to live your life as one sitcom character, past or present. Who is it?
1: Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! The pressure. Um, sitcom character. I always liked, you know, it's so funny, like, do I want to go for flash or do I want to go for, like, happiness and comfort? You know who I loved growing up? I just thought that Elise Keaton seemed like
0: such... The ultimate mom. The ultimate
1: mom. She just seemed, like, uh, glowing and nurturing, but also funny and cool and happy and fulfilled, you know?
0: And a great theme song.
1: And it had an amazing theme song. That had, the
0: be- that had to be the best sitcom theme song of all time. I think Cheers or or Family Cheers Ties. Cheers
1: is amazing. You know, um, I just recently saw the first episode of Cheers. Have you ever gone back and watched it was the pilot?
0: Coaches still there? Yeah. And, right. It's very different.
1: Well, but it's really good. Like that's a show that really holds up. Oh,
0: see, is it, it is good. Also, it was a failure for the first you know season or so. Oh, was it really? Yeah, it almost got canceled. You know. Well, right, no, that's that's when you still have she- uh, Shelly Wong was on it, Coach was the, you know, there was no Fraser Crane. It's a very different... Uh, and
1: I forgot, I mean, it had been so many years since I'd watched it, I forgot that Sam Malone was an alcoholic running a bar. What a really bizarre premise for a show. I forgot
0: that until now, too. Yeah. That's right. That's right. No, Sam- I mean, that's kind
1: of a heavy thing. Yeah. But they never really dwell in his drinking much at all. Um, He just happens to be running a bar, and he has a dark past, and he was a, you know, he drank a lot, he was that baseball player, right?
0: Mayday Malone, um,
1: right, right. Yeah. <laughs> And what do you know? He just happens to be dry and runs a bar and gets everyone drunk, which is a really strange premise, I have to say. As somebody who doesn't thinking about what we were talking about at the beginning, like do you right. go into bars? You know, the idea of running a bar is a very strange thing. Well, to Well, also me.
0: Right, what you're saying too about like after a few drinks, everybody becomes difficult to talk to if you're not drinking with I know. them. I And I'm picturing the conversations with Norm. Well, exactly. Norm is
1: such a like heroized, like or at least at the very least benign and lovable character in that show. But you know, I've known a lot of Real life norms in my life, and like, yeah. They, I mean, they are also lovable, but like, hard to talk to after a certain hour. Right. You know, you're just kind of like.
0: Know, we never really saw on Cheers. I think the real norm the, would no, I don't like dark there, Cheers right. would
1: be like a very interesting thing, which would be sure everybody's.
0: I think the Simpsons did that once. They did like a spoof of Cheers, and, and Norm just turns really dark all of a sudden and like smashes the glass or whatever, you know. This is kind of a dark story. This
1: guy is living at the bar because he can't stand his home life. Right. But, you know, hey.
0: But that was Cheers. Everybody sort of fit into a little, you know... Uh,
1: it was sweet. It was a really sweet story. It's a beautiful theme song. Yes, Family Ties and Cheers, two of the greatest theme songs and, of and all I, time. And I'll
0: give you a third one, and it's the character I, I always... Uh, Perfect Strangers. I'm Balky. Ba- well, No. I, no, you want to be Larry? Because I always had a plan. <laughs> <laughs> I always had a stupid plan that would blow up in my face, and uh, so I could relate to it. I don't know if I'd want to be. I guess it's a question of who do you, Who would I want to be? I wouldn't want to be.
1: You know, that was my mom's favorite sitcom.
0: It was Perfect, it was perfect Strangers. It was Absolutely. so just She chill. loved it. It was so zany. She you would know? always
1: say, That Balky's so funny. <laughs> don't
0: be ridiculous. Don't
1: be ridiculous.
0: Um, and he was from uh, uh, Meepost, which is near the island where our. Uh, our uh, usual moderator Jeff is uh, staying in, in Greece, I think. <laughs> um, I did want to ask you just b- before we go about the process of writing a book. Yeah. Because um, I know, I mean, you, you've written, uh, you know, a lot of essays before, but you know, this is this is one really really long essay. How, yeah. how long did it take you to do this? What did was there a moment when you were like, this isn't going to work? I'm not going to be yes, able to write this.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the big mistakes I made was thinking that it would just be. Because like, I, I had gotten to where I was writing essays pretty fast, you know? Um, so like 1,500 words I could just kind of kick out. And I thought, well, then this is just like 30 essays back to back. So it'll take me 60 days. <laughs> like, that's no problem. I've done the math. It's going to be great. You don't think about the fact that you're actually having to do one sustained narrative. I mean, I think one of the things about writing those short essays is you don't have to worry. Like, if you're uncomfortable about a certain subject, you just cut it out. Like, this is the thing about writing short, is like, if a paragraph isn't working, just cut it. Just keep going. Go, 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 go. And when you're writing a book, and it is a much more, you have to much more carefully put together the the universe, you know? It did not take me 60 days. It took me, like, three years to write this book. And part of that was just figuring out which parts I wanted to tell. Because, like, in a life, you have an infinite number of stories you could tell. I mean, you know, like, it wasn't immediately evident to me, like, oh, it's going to start here, and then it's going to track here and then I'm going to talk about this. I mean, I didn't know. I was figuring it out as I went along. And the nice thing about that was that it took me so long to write the book that I realized that part of the book needed to be about after I quit drinking because I didn't know that at first. And I wanted it to be about because I was so convinced that my life would end after I quit drinking. And so I really wanted to follow my story in the years after that when I tried to put together my friendships without alcohol, and I tried to write without alcohol, and I tried to date without alcohol. All of them, all of these things were incredibly challenging to me as somebody who had depended on that as a crutch, and also who, who's living in this drinking culture where those are just a part of the natural order of business. You know, if you're gonna go on a date, what do you do, let's get a drink. So if you don't have that, what can you do? So anyway, the fact that it took that long allowed me to figure out what it should be about. But it was a really long process, and patience is not my strong suit at all.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm in the process of sort of trying to write a book right now, and it's I, I it's I envy and am in awe of people who go through it and finish it, and and who turn out something. I mean, I, honest to God, I, I I told you I would say nice things about this no matter what. But honest to God, this it was this is a great book, and I, and I hope people out there pick it up. Um, Blackout. By the way, how did I compare to Terry Gross? Fantastic.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, honestly, much sexier.
0: Well, (laughs) we have something new for the promotional materials for the show. Um, Sarah Heppola it was so awesome hanging out with you here. Appreciate it. Thank you for doing this. I loved it, Steve. All right. And um, thank you, everybody, for watching on Meerkat, listening on the podcast, and a programming note for you. Uh, Our next guest next week. Um, Beer and Loathing is going to be Adam Resnick. Adam Resnick is author of the memoir, Will Not Attend. It is a collection of funny essays about being antisocial. Um, they're, they're extremely funny, the, the ones I've read so far. I'll get the entire book read by next week. But Adam Resnick, he's also been a writer for Letterman, for Gary Shandling, uh, and he was uh, the, the writer of the 1994 movie Cabin Boy. So he's going to be on next week. I'm so excited. Thank you for watching this week. We'll see you soon.